Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Headstuff podcast. I'm here with Paddy O'Leary. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, his first time on the podcast, because uh, we're talking about sciencey stuff today, and he knows a little bit about that stuff. A little bit more than you, I think. S- slightly more than I know. Um, so, uh, this episode is with David Moore, who's the uh, editor of Astronomy Ireland magazine, and um, he's basically the guy who started Astronomy Ireland, as far as I know. Uh, pretty good guy, likes to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to say. There's a lot to say. It's all interesting. Yeah. Like once once this intro is over and the podcast starts, you're not going to hear too much from me and Paddy. <laughs> so, which we, is good though. It's great. Like. Yeah, we we kind of took the back seat a bit because we everything allowed. you were saying was very yeah. interesting, and mm. uh, I think for most of it, our mouths were just open. Yeah, uh, in awe. <laughs> agape. So, agape is the word. Agape. Yeah. Um, yeah. We uh, like I had I had things I wanted to ask him, and when he when he ever really finished certain sentences. I was still trying to think about everything he had just said and I just couldn't get the question out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's tough trying to get a question out when you're still trying to get your head wrapped around some... Yeah. Um, several million digits of... Uh, yeah. Of I was he said something about like uh, a zero point and then 24 zeros or something. Is that... Yeah, yeah. When like I think when he was talking about uh, a trillion galaxies each with a trillion stars, so you have a... A trillion, a trillion, trillion stars, and yeah, yeah, they're not numbers that you can wrap around your head too easily. No, that's not easy. It's not easy. So you've signed up now, to remember. Uh, last night, uh, we, we did this interview last night, and then we went out and uh, to an Astronomy Ireland event and looked through some big telescopes at the Moon and Venus and Jupiter. What was it? And you signed up to be a member. I did. Um, I was thinking about becoming a member already. Right. And then... After listening to uh, uh, David for an hour and uh, looking at the moon in all of its glory. He was, tricked you. He tricked me into it. <laughs> uh, he got me. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, pretty pretty happy. Is it, what is it? Is it like a cult? Is it you, you, you've now signed over your life? I think it's like Scientology. Right. But you get to use telescopes. Sounds fair. And I don't think there's as many levels. Okay, cool. Um, so, although that's something I always thought was cool about uh, Scientology, <laughs> that there was levels. You can level up. Yeah, because, like, uh, like, you know, I like my video games. Yeah. So, yeah. I was like, yeah, all right, levels, I can do this. All right. And then, uh, turns out I don't have enough money. But instead of, like, in a computer game where you're doing really well, you put in your, your 20 pence or whatever it is. I haven't played an arcade in a while, is it still 20p? And you put that in. No, I doubt it. <laughs> and um, you put you put that in, and if you do really well, you go up levels, all in that same twenty p. Whereas that's true with yeah. the Scientology video game. Every time you go up a level, they make you pay more money. Yeah, so it's like twenty p for the first level. No, no, first level is free. Oh, you that's see, that's where they get, get you. you. Yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. they get you. Yeah, and then when you go up a level, it's like four hundred quid. Yeah. Then you go up to the next level. By the time you get to the top. You're basically like an A-list movie star and every penny you earn, you have to give to them. But do you know what's crazy? But I think if t- top level, though. I think if you actually had an arcade where you went in and the first level was free. Yeah. And then to get on to the second level, you have to pay like 50 cents. Yeah. And then to get on to like, say, level three, you have to pay a euro. Yeah. Gamers are mental enough <laughs> that there will be arcades out there making money. Yeah. From gamers. Yeah. But Did we just invent a new type of game? Let's Let's do it. Actually, can we edit this so that nobody else can hear it? Yeah. And then we, we can copyright that. I'm sure Adam can do that. I'm sure S- that's possible. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Um, 
We also might get sued from Scientology now. Oh yeah, forgot about that. Yeah, that's uh, that's a risk these days. Yeah. No, we weren't talking about Scientology. We were talking about Scientology. Two very different things. Very different. Yeah. Very. We want to. We want to level up to Isaac Newton level. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we want. That's it. Yeah. G- going up to quantum level two, <laughs> and then on to uh, Fahrenheit or something. So let's see. So you, when you signed up to Astronomy Ireland, you get ten back issues. Of yeah. Astronomy Ireland. Well, magazine. I think that might have just been last night, kind of a uh, oh, right. a special deal. Oh, special. Oh, because special it was uh, at, at an event. Oh, um, do you feel special? Very okay. Uh, well, very let's special. see. What's, what what do they look like? What's on the? So yeah, the covers. Um, so it's a monthly issue. Yeah. Um, What's on so this month? This month being June somehow. Um, the Is way it? magazines do that. It's actually not June yet, but will be probably when you're listening. Could be. You beautiful podcast listener. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is all about the summer solstice. Oh, okay. Um, that happens in June. Uh, that happens in June. Yeah. Uh, the May one was about uh, solar eclipses. Oh yeah. And it was, it was a special a solar eclipse, wasn't there? Special souvenir edition. It was a bit cloudy. Did you Did you get to see the solar eclipse? No, I didn't. It was a bit cloudy. It went a bit dull for a while. It was a mad early in the morning as well. Or it was a, oh yeah, it was like half nine, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't have been up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm not a I'm not a morning person. No. Um, um, but yeah, e- even for astronomy, <laughs> not a morning person. Um, yeah, you get you get involved with like midday solar eclipses and that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm down for that. Yeah. Any, anything. See, that's why astronomy is good for me. You know, nighttime. Nighttime. Yeah. I can get on board with that. Yeah. I can sleep in. I like the idea of what they're doing with the sun, though. You can look at the sun. Yeah. So that's an event that's coming up. Um, I'm not exactly sure the date, but you can check it out on astronomy.ie. Um, so they're going to somehow put up a big um, white blanket, I'm guessing, and then put a projection of the sun we onto the wall. We call it a screen, I think. Let's call it a screen. We won't call it a blanket. No? <laughs> Let's call it a screen. Is that a little too DIY? Yeah. You know, maybe they're, uh, they're yeah. probably ahead of the game. Yeah, they've got telescopes. They have got telescopes. Yeah. So, yeah, they're going to project the sun onto a massive screen. Yeah. Um, that biggest telescope they had. That was massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. Uh, what would you? How would you describe the the width of it? The diameter, let's say. Yeah. So when you're talking telescopes, you're talking diameters. Right. Um, and I'd say it was a dinner plate. The diameter of a dinner dinner plate. Easily. So I'd say the whole. I'd say the whole telescope was the size of, like, if you were if you were if you were making a dinner for your extended family, and you had all the plates piled up before you started serving. I'd say that's the kind of size the telescope was. Yeah, well... So 25 dinner plates. It's it's kind of like if you have uh, a tin of beans, right? but the lid of it yeah. is the size of a dinner plate, but everything yes. else is in proportion. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it was like that. It was like a giant tin of beans. Was it actually just a, a can? Like, we were just looking through like big tin cans. No, because we saw the moon in good detail, didn't we? Yeah, with like fancy... Uh, yeah, fancy lenses and stuff. I don't know there. if any of the if any of uh, any of our listeners have looked through a telescope before. I've looked through a telescope, but not quite like that. I just didn't. You can see the moon in great detail. Yeah, yeah. I it's think mad. like I've I've looked through telescopes before, and even I was kind of shocked. Yeah, it was like you looked into it, and you were like, "Oh, what?" Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Wait, wait, give me a look at that." <laughs> and then when I looked through it, it was like, "Oh, wow." Yeah, you can really see detail. Like, like you, you feel like. It, there doesn't seem to be any life up there, probably. Yeah. 
I mean, we've had a look around. They're probably underneath the crust. Yeah, they were. You know, yeah, I read the no atmosphere. You don't first really man want to the moon by H.G. Uh, Wells. Oh yeah, and it seems that all life is is under the inside the moon. Yeah. So uh, if he was right, I don't think we 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 dug too deep when we, when Neil Armstrong and the boys went up there. Mm. But um, is that book good? It 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 is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I I've read uh, War of the Worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's amazing. Yeah, I didn't read that. Um, that's to do with Mars though. Yeah, Tom Cruise is in the film. Yeah. I just wanted to name Tom Cruise for a second time. In the yeah. Podcast. Um, um, but yeah, no, that Tom Cruise film really uh, let the book down. I heard that was his highest grossing movie. Yeah. That's bizarre. That's a bit mental. Yeah, that's bizarre. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, no, like I, I, I enjoyed the first Man of the Moon. I read it all and I was got to the end without giving it up. It's It's interesting because it was obviously written before anyone had landed on the moon. Yeah. So he was guessing wildly and very incorrectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that, that's interesting in itself. Yeah, well, I, like, I think War of the Worlds was written in 1890. Was it? Is that too mental? No. No, I don't think it is. I think that's right. Yeah, people were writing stuff then. Um. So, like, just to even think about different stuff out there. Yeah. It's a bit mental. <laughs> you know? Uh, at that stage like the whole science behind it and all wasn't wasn't there at all yeah. and uh, he wasn't sure how uh, you know rockets and stuff because there was no rockets yeah so how the aliens came down from Mars was they were shooting them out with cannons that's brilliant you know they shot these giant cylinders from giant cannons on Mars that it's basically came a rocket then isn't it it's basically a rocket but yeah. they didn't have like yeah. fuel and projection and all that wow just shoot over cannon. Sure, why not? Huh, maybe I should uh, read that book then. Should. I'd recommend it. War of the Worlds. I'm on it. Uh, what else do we have on the covers of these things? Um, so there's a lot of stuff about Rosetta. Yeah, that, is ma- that was amazing. Because um, there's actually a guy writing in this as well, in the Astronomy Ireland um, um, magazine called Lawrence O'Rourke. Oh, he works with DSA. And yeah. And so he's kind of given them all the... Ins- European Space Agency. So he's given them uh, all the inside track of what's going on and all these different kind of things. So that's cool. And it's kind of from a an insider perspective. Okay. Um, yeah, he's saying there's world exclusives in it because he's given them the stories before anyone else. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff about uh, the um, different things you can see in Ireland in Irish skies and um, different comets and... The AORs and stuff like that. And you can sign up for trips. There's a nice trip there on one of them, I think, wasn't there? Yeah, uh, it's just on the back of the newest issue there. I don't um, have it. I don't have it. Uh, so, yeah, they're going to... Uh, where are they going? I think it's Norway or something like that. To go oh, see up I'd the, love to do that. The Northern Lights. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, David Moore, who's on our podcast, is uh, going to be there alongside you. Yeah. Giving you talks and stuff as well. So, that'd be pretty awesome. He's a fascinating man. He is. The man yeah. knows the stuff. Yeah. He knows yeah. stuff about the universe. And he's, uh, you know, he's fully into it. Oh, he's so into it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he loves it. He um, he was just excited for the entire time he was talking. Yeah. Yeah, he loves it. Um, And that makes him uh, an interesting guest. I yeah. Think, I think people are going to enjoy it. Um, If you like, you know, uh, science or, or space or... 
thinking about things like where we all came from this is the episode few and here everybody should probably think about things like where we came from and what's going on above our heads exactly uh so that's good how do you how do you how do you like being on the podcast yeah it's it's uh, it's fine yeah. you know it's uh, it's, it's fine it's 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 bloody amazing yeah bloody am- that's what i thought you were going to uh, say so uh yeah uh, have me back sometime you know maybe i'll uh, talk about something else something else or the exact same stuff or the exact same <laughs> stuff <laughs> all right it's up to you man it's cool. up to you well give a shout out to your uh, your homeboys my homeboys um, oh turn your phone off uh, see rookie mistake <laughs> first time on it rookie mistake uh, yeah you know shout out to the bridge uh, where myself and Al hail from that's uh, new bridge county Kildare the, everybody the only the only bridge that's worth talking about the only bridge yeah um, not the newest bridge in Ireland but it's not new enough in fairness it is actually a new enough bridge it's it is these days yeah um, but yeah I guess it wasn't called Old Bridge before it became New Bridge. It was called Bridge. <laughs> it was. It was just Bridge. <laughs> it was called Bridge for a few hundred years. I think. I think it was just the <laughs> barracks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, that so, was it. Um, but so okay. Well, I think we should uh, let wrap it up into the podcast. Let's Pod- do it. Yeah. So um, yeah, this is uh, this is uh, episode seven of the Headstuff Podcast with David Moore. Welcome to the Headstuff Podcast. We're here with David Moore from Astronomy Ireland. And for the first time, we've got uh, Paddy O'Leary. How are you doing? Um, so uh, we're going to be talking a lot about space and astronomy and stars and planets and loads of stuff I don't understand. Um, but I suppose I suppose we should get to know you a bit first. So uh, let's see. How, how, did you, how did you start Astronomy Ireland? Well, we, we started Astronomy Ireland because we wanted a group that was very much for the general public. There were a few groups around that were for people who knew a bit about astronomy. There are lots of professional groups as well. There are international groups. But in Ireland, there wasn't really a, an organisation that went out there and tried to reach all now six million people on the island. Yeah. And that was our brief. If you're not interested in astronomy, then Astronomy Ireland wants you. Right. Because you're missing out on something. <laughs> and it's our job to show you what. Okay. And some people will say they have no interest in astronomy, but everyone's got to wonder where they came from. Mm. And unless they've got faith, yeah. then they want a rational explanation for it. Astronomy is the thing that's going to answer for them. And when they so. start thinking at that level, they get interest, they get hooked, and you can shortly thereafter tell them, you see, you are actually interested in astronomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way, the way you say that, their faith was nearly, nearly in air quotes. It leads me to believe you don't have any. Personally, no, it doesn't do anything for me being sort of interested in science. You, you want everything to be proved to yes, you. Yes, yeah. And, you know, faith, a proof denies faith. Yeah. So the basic tenet of religion is that we're not going to prove ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So it's, ir- it's, in my opinion, trust irrational, us, trust us. illogical, <laughs> and therefore you can never mix the two. I mean, um, to me, science and religion are like oil and water. You can shake them up a bit, maybe see if they're mixed, but they'll separate out. They are two very different things. And if you, I, I suppose in science, uh, in faith, you believe in something. In science, you believe in nothing. So you might ask me later on about the Big Bang Theory. It's only a theory. I've got to be prepared to throw it out if a better explanation comes along that yeah. fits the facts. Yeah. You've got to keep that, your mind that open. You don't have your mind so open that your brains fall out. Yeah. You've got to keep it fairly open nonetheless. And if you're going to believe in religious dogma, then I, I, I don't see what's to be gained from it. You know, the, When you know a bit about how the universe seems to have come to be, I won't say that's a, a faith system, but it sort of gives you an explanation of 
why we might be here. Yeah, I had that piece not too long ago on head stuff about why we should always keep questioning ourselves mm. and yep. that answers are dangerous. It's the questions that will keep us going. If we have an answer and we just say, oh, God did it, yeah. then we'll stop questioning things and that's dangerous in, in itself. Yeah, I mean, you can talk about this subject all day. I, I give talks in schools all around the country. and the, Catholic we, schools? Uh, any school. <laughs> talk to anybody. Um, doesn't matter if they're young minds that are looking for so, some interesting subjects and some answers. Yeah. That's who we want to talk to. And the, the one thing we, we tell them, the story of the universe, and we take them on the planets out through the stars and galaxy and try and at least get their minds open to the fact a lot more than what goes on on this earth. And at the end of it, we say, well, this is a theory. And we try to explain to them the Big Bang and how the universe came to be. And we think we know how many billion years ago that was. You can see they're just totally bamboozled. And yeah. this sounds like a fairy story, like they've been told not so long ago to go before they went to sleep. <laughs> and I say, it will sound like a fairy story, but don't believe anything I've said. As you go through your studies, you know, you can have all this proved to you and you're welcome to try and disprove it. And mm. people have done that before you. And this is what they've come up with, the best explanation for why we're here. It doesn't stop the odd pupil immediately afterwards. <clears throat> the first question being, is there a heaven? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't found it yet. But at least, <laughs> as I say to them, yeah, think. You know, if you leave them thinking, yeah. that's the important thing. I mean, one, one of my big uh, drums I like to beat at the moment is the fact that Ireland has a science economy. Yeah. If you ask the average man in the street, where's Ireland's economy come from? They don't know that 60% of it, 60% yeah. of our GDP is science-based. Yeah. There's all these pharmaceutical and electronic and software companies that we have. You know, agriculture's doing well, still less than 10%. And even at the height of the boom, the construction industry was three times smaller than the science economy. So we have this huge economy and the general public don't know that we're a science-based economy. And I think that's the biggest thing we should be screaming about because most of those kids we're talking to in schools, they're going to end up, if not in directly science-related jobs, they're going to be in companies that are servicing science-related yeah. companies. You know, so even if you're selling photocopier paper, you're probably selling it to a science-based organisation. So it's, it, 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 the government wanted a knowledge-based economy, to use the buzzword, and they've got it, but I don't think they're screaming enough about it. Yeah. And do you do you kind of keep up with the like the the young scientists of the what are the BT young scientists? BT young scientists of the year. Do you keep up with all that stuff? Like do we, you? we do. Yeah, we often have a stand set up at okay. young scientists. We in the old days when the rules were different, it wasn't BT. Um, they rationalised all, and the new sponsor took over. We used to actually offer a prize, a small prize. In the young scientists, there were lots of people offering small prizes. I think there were too many. The award ceremonies going on longer than the competition, <laughs> um, so you can see why they they cut the smaller prizes out. But uh, there's what thirty thousand visitors, and probably more these days go there. It's a great buzz off it, and mm. there's all those young people again thinking about, yeah. about science, and and they're the future. Yeah. Uh, Astronomy is twenty five years old this year. And we've realized over the past 25 years, we set the club up as a small group of people that would get together with that similar interest, take a few telescopes out, have a bit of fun, have a few more friends, perhaps. Yeah. But it wasn't very popular uh, back in the 90s. And uh, that worked. And the organization had about 25,000 friends and on our emailing list. And about 4,000 magazines are being printed every month. Right. So that, that makes it relative to population the biggest astronomy club in the world. And unless we know of any aliens, we could argue in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that um, uh, is, uh, is, well, I think trying to get people interested is, is a lot more fun 
than doing the astronomy, to be honest. Right. Okay. So that's your main. <laughs> and, and that's that's become one of our 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 big reasons, I suppose, for, for existing. Now we do all of our astronomy stuff, but we have our twenty fifth anniversary starts August the first this year, and for that whole year from then on, um, we're trying to introduce programs which are based around the simple slogan of inspiring the future. Mm. Because we've had a few young members who have written to us, we've helped them out, they've gone on to do their studies. Some of them are now heads of departments in universities in Ireland. One of them ended up doing a PhD with Stephen Hawking. Now we didn't do that deliberately, that just happened accidentally and we're not claiming his PhD <laughs> studies, but we were at least there to help support them. Who knows if, we, if they would have kept it up? Yeah. Hopefully they would have, but we That's certainly no, you wanted You should be shouting about that as an achievement. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> from the next 25 years, we're not going to let that happen accidentally. We're going to deliberately make it happen. If you like, it's the sort of pension plan right. for astronomy. The young kids today <laughs> will end up in college, will end up as researchers. And of course, they'll train a whole bunch of scientists and engineers who will work in industry. Yeah. So you realise then the payback for the Irish economy is colossal. That when you get uh, to be a national organisation and you've got a certain amount of momentum, you can you can change things quite dramatically. Yeah. Astronomy has definitely got to be the easiest science to get kids interested in in thinking. Yeah. If nothing else. Yeah. Well, and it, great fun as well. It'd definitely be a lot easier than say chemistry or something like that because looking up at the stars. It simply just blows children's minds. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But with and chemistry, you can actually blow stuff up. That's true, <laughs> but kids love that. Yeah, but you're not allowed to let kids do that. Oh yeah, not it's anymore. It's a little bit more dangerous than astronomy, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> and you've got these fantastic explosions in space, the Big Bang itself, the That's supernova. True. That's true. And mm. lots of other uh, fancy explosions that, when you think about them, you don't see really see them happening in real time. Yeah, when you think not about really. Them, no. They dwarf any chemical explosions, yeah, or even true. nuclear explosions yeah. that mankind's likely ever to produce. So you can think about really exotic and complicated things. And it's yeah. great, great fun explaining that a few points like that to kids in school. You, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you can tell them how hot things are and how dense things are and how crazy things are out there in space and how they're going to forget all these facts. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the, the great thing now is, of course, the people like Elon Musk who set up PayPal mm. and uh, it sold SpaceX it for about and Tesla. Yeah, he sold it for about a billion dollars. And uh, for that, then he set up SpaceX and uh, his, his electric motor car company. Uh, but SpaceX has now got multi-billion dollar contracts from NASA mm. and he, 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 currently they're unmanned craft that he's launching to the space station but his plan is now to have manned spacecraft and he has said, he's in his early 40s, that he is going to put 80,000 people on Mars during his lifetime. So if you take the average lifespan, he's got four decades to do it. Mm. And that's 80,000 astronauts, there's only been 500 in space to date. But mm. things will take off exponentially because you've got to figure out the best way to do rockets. Once you've done it, you'll then mass produce them. Yeah. And that's the business he's in. And a man like that with multi-billion dollar successful companies under his belt, you've got to believe him when he says he's going to put 80,000 people on Mars. He's, he hasn't chosen that figure out of a hat, I don't think. Yeah. And that means there's going to be jobs for 80,000 astronauts <laughs> and probably 80 million employees yeah. supporting all, all yeah. that. And it means a Mars col colony. Mm. And it means space is going to change dramatically in young kids who were talking to in schools lifetimes and they could be his future employees going into space i mean kids these days the space program is in their history books and they ask you have you ever been into space <laughs> <laughs> it's commonplace for them <laughs> and would you go would you be interested i applied yeah well oh, you did in 1991 there was an ad in the irish times and it said astronaut wanted no experience necessary. <laughs> <laughs> the reason was Ireland's a, a, a member of the European Space Agency, a very small member. We've less than 1% stake in the whole thing, but then we're a small country. And 
they they were setting up an astronaut corps because one they wanted to have their own manned vehicle and then they chipped in with the American space program and the International Space Station program after that. So they needed an astronaut corps to do their side of the manned space work that was coming up. Um, which, you know, from the space station, it's basically you're a lab technician doing experiments for scientists at home who you liaise with. You're also a guinea pig because they're monitoring the effects of weightlessness on your body. And you're a construction worker. If anything breaks, you get out in a spacesuit outside and fix it. Yeah. Uh, so we wanted ESA astronauts to do that. Uh, it wasn't going to be all just Americans. It is the International Space Station. So they were going to hire 12 astronauts. And, you know, the qualification to be an astronaut, you don't have to be the right stuff anymore. As long as you've got a reasonable science degree or a pilot's license, you can do the jobs. You can be trained for the jobs that are up there. They're not rocket science these days. <laughs> <laughs> They're rocket science down on the ground designing everything. <laughs> and they need a few grunts if you like to go up there and do it. Smart grunts. Um, grunts so, with a pilot's license and a science yeah, degree. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was the qualification. If you had no science degree but a pilot's license, they could use you for flying the craft. Oh, sorry, one or the other. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Both. So, yeah well, you didn't like, have to have both, no. And, or if you had a science degree, you could be trained as a high-class lab technician. Uh, so there were 12 countries in ESA at the time, and they needed 12 astronauts. And although Ireland only had a tiny stake it was going to be politically correct to hire one from each country. Yeah. So we'd effectively have a better chance. Um, 700 people applied in Ireland. I think it was 15,000 in the UK. Um, they were whittled down. I, I got to the last 15, of which they chose four. And they, we were asked to opt out if, you know, for really simple reasons. There were going to be so many candidates that if they found anything wrong with you, even though it wouldn't affect you going to space, they said, oh, look, uh, this, every, these, we got enough perfect candidates and they found a minor issue with my inner ear or something to do with it. Probably a childhood ear infection I had. A whole bunch of people in my day got uh, asked, not rejected, but asked not to put their name forward mm. to ESA because they'd broken their nose playing sports. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, oh, you've had something broken in the past. And that's just an excuse to whittle the numbers down. Yeah. So yeah. many people applied. So I opted out. I really, In hindsight, I should have really stuck with it and tried to get into the last four. But we put four candidates forward. Unfortunately, during all this process, um, there were cutbacks, and the number of astronauts was cut to six. And so the countries that have the huge stakes in yeah. Lisa, they tended to get the astronauts. Uh, no Irish person was selected out of the four in the end. But there was another round in 1997, and there was another round selection in the early noughties, and there'll probably be another one coming up soon, if not in the next few years. Right. The International Space Station is still up there, and these astronauts retire. New blood is needed all and the time. And that was what it was for. It was for to go into the International Space yeah, Station. Yeah, at the time, ESA was trying to develop its own craft called Hermes. Right. which, uh, uh, for budgetary reasons, never, never saw the light of day. Um, and everything was going great with the space shuttle and the space station, and the Russians can launch people as well. And things have changed a lot now. The, the Americans have got no manned space launcher. They're, yeah. they're relying on the Russians to get up into space, and they're trying to build their own new manned craft. Mm -hmm. But it's hopefully just a hiccup along the way, a bit of an embarrassment for the Americans yeah. over the next couple of years and the last few years. And what, what do you think about these, uh, you know, one-way tickets to Mars and everything else? Would you be interested in something like that? Well, we ran an article in our magazine there just um, uh, about Mars One. With Joseph Roach. With Joseph Roach, yeah, uh, because he's spoken out about the issue. Yeah. I was on TV with him there, actually just over a year ago. And uh, every, he was being hailed and he was getting, he was doing great in the process down to the last 1,000. But a lot of people are concerned the way Mars One is set up. There's supposed to be a non-profit organisation, but there are some question marks about that. It's probably not too wise to say much about it for legal reasons. 
uh, but he certainly voiced his opinions. I don't think anybody from their side will be listening to this anyway. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. You never know. You never know. That's a, a big place and easy to find things. But they, they, um, uh, they have an interesting model, which on paper sounds great. You know, it's a one-way trip, but it's not a one-way suicide mission. It's a one-way <laughs> trip, as in we'll figure out the systems that will keep you alive for the rest of your life, yeah. and then we'll send you. Uh, and that saves the cost of having a return craft because building a craft on the earth with all the machinery and factories and everything yeah. that we've got here, resources, um, is difficult enough. And to try and do that on Mars or to have a craft that can launch from Mars mm. and get you back uh, it would be a major undertaking. And I believe the ballpark figures are that you're looking around the 10 billion mark right. to go one way, but you can add an extra zero onto that if you want to come back. Right. And then, and so it sounded, I remember when I first heard of it, it sounded a bit crazy, but you you might have been worth the risk to go down in history as the first person on Mars, perhaps. But also, if you think about what happened when Columbus discovered the Americas and the first pilgrims headed over, they were on a one-way mission as well. And a lot of them died because the crops they brought with them weren't suitable for the North American continent. It was only because there were Native Americans there who showed them how to live off the land that they actually stopped dying yeah. and managed to thrive. Uh, now hopefully Native Americans will be re replaced not with Martians but with scientists back on the earth who can give you enough yeah, information yeah, so you yeah. get to Mars you'll be able to solve the huge problems there are in trying to grow crops in Martian soil it's not like the earth at all problems with the atmosphere problems with radiation problems with chemistry it's, uh, it's almost somewhere you could imagine living but in fact a lot of things there are set up to kill you <laughs> so the one-way system will be a in very interesting challenge and the business model they had to try and fund the whole thing by sort of involving the, the, the public was actually a great idea mm. that's, that's the effective way the Americans did it they had the Cold War and they raced the Russians and yeah. nobody knew what was going on yeah. and it inspired ev ev everybody um, so a good idea on paper where it'll actually work a lot of people think perhaps not yeah. They hope to get up there in the 2020s, and mm. the rest of the world, with a two-way mission, expects to get up there in the 2030s, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it seemed, it, I was a bit more hopeful for it. We actually had an argument about this before, me and you, and uh, yeah, I, I think I changed my mind a bit when Joseph Roach came out. It was like, you know, he was really involved, and he's 100% sceptical now. He's, yeah. he's pulled himself out of the running, hasn't he? Yeah, I, I, or he's got that, that he's out he's, he's out of the running now. He's been yes. kicked out as well. I think yeah. he was. Yeah, I'm sure there's a more diplomatic way of putting it that day. Yeah, I think he was nudged, <laughs> nudged out. He yeah. probably didn't just get through to the next round. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and um, you could argue, you know, I suppose, uh, you know, how you handle the PR is is probably very important if this is going to be a PR based operation. Yeah, but didn't he say things about like the interview was just like a Skype call and they didn't really check his kind of physical capacity and all this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, but on the other hand, you know, if you it could, it, I don't know the Mars One program that intimately, but it could be like the ESA program, whereby the first the candidates that you need, um, the, you, they don't have to be super men or women. Mm. So if you're going to whittle the numbers down to ma a manageable number, you can actually physically interview and medically test, and then start training. Mm. Uh, you know, you, you can almost just you just need a hatchet to chop the numbers down, <laughs> and that's what they did with us. Uh, in the ESA round selection is what they do actually with most astronaut programs because it's one job that's heavily oversubscribed right. I remember the lady on the day was testing us we used the, uh, the army uh, hospital here in Dublin and she thought we were all crazy <laughs> wanting to go into space <laughs> realise how dangerous it is <laughs> but you know there was a very big salary being offered in 1991 as well yeah. it was £60,000 sterling and by some European law it was tax free 
Nice. Taxes were very high back then, even worse than they are now. And uh, 60,000 would have bought you several houses, I remember <laughs> correctly. So it was probably equal to a million or something like that today. So that money alone would have attracted people. Yeah. Along the glory. Some of us, though, would have done it for nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose it should be tax-free if you're making it when you're not on the earth. True. Yeah. On the other hand, though, you, you train for what I think it was four. If it's a four-year contract, you probably only end up in space for two weeks. <laughs> Although now you'll do six months on the space station. Yeah, the, the first guy is doing that at the moment, isn't it? Kind of testing. The, this first, the, the new crew, there tend to be um, the six people on the space station most of the time. And they, they're in two batches of three. So three people go up, and they used to stay up for six months. So three months in, a new crew would come up. So there'd okay. be an overlap yeah, yeah, yeah. that way. But now they've started to go for long-duration missions, which is to see... How, you know, for one how year, affects, yeah. how it affects weight, the weight affects the human body for a year, because that's the trip to Mars and back. Yeah, so right. to start generating data like that, the Americans are serious about about going to Mars. Obama said that we were basically going to try and go to an asteroid first, because they've been to the moon, and there is actually commercial opportunities to mine asteroids. So there might be a commercial kickback on that as well. Landing on this a bit easier too, with very little gravity. <laughs> yeah, all right. And would you like to be one of Elon Musk's first 80,000 up onto Mars? Uh, might be getting a bit, a bit old for him now. There might be some younger, fitter, healthier people that uh, would, would beat me to the post. But yeah, I'd, I'd still go. And we have Richard Branson, who's got Virgin Galactic. Yeah, interesting and that. There's, f there's five people that have, yeah, Irish people that we know of, who, who I've met as his uh, vice president of Virgin Galactic. And he told me there are five people that pay. I know who four of them are. I think one might want to be anonymous. Uh, Bill Cullen's one of them. Oh, right, yeah. The guy who runs Irish Psychics Live, whose name escapes me. He's another Irish one. Irish Psychics. Irish Psychics Live, yeah. They're still going. And uh, <laughs> okay. they'd, know, they'd know better than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a private individual, Derek Heatley, in, in the north of Ireland. And there's a chap I met who runs a software company based over in Galway. Right. He was doing well enough to be able to afford a $200,000 price tag or was it euros. And that's um, just you go up into like low orbit. Yeah, you're only in a suborbital flight. You're technically above the 100 kilometer mark, which is officially now regarded as the edge of space. You go above that, you're classed as an astronaut. Oh, right. Even though you might not necessarily be in orbit for very long. So you probably only spend a few minutes weightless and maybe an hour up and down, that kind of thing. So it's a very short flight, $200,000. And they hope to put uh, ultimately thousands of people per year up yeah. who can all effectively say there were astronauts they will float weightless they will see the curvature of the earth the sky will be dark there will be stars in the in the sky at night uh, during the daytime all those kind of things it'll definitely be a unique experience yeah and as the as the numbers of people go through the roof yeah then the cost will drop to yeah. pr probably or maybe around the tens of thousands which is the kind of price that people pay for world cruises and a lot of people and a lot of companies making money of world cruises and he's going to have a multi-billion dollar turnover company in virgin galactic right so he's actually you know it's it's a good business opportunity and yeah. other people want to do other things with space hotels and the like uh, that could come to fruition during our lifetime as well or in the in short term even um so yeah i if i had two hundred thousand euros to, to spare because there's other things i'd like to do with yeah, it, yeah. i'd probably more interested in a giant telescope actually than, than <laughs> a short trip into space but if, if somebody would pay me to be an astronaut, yeah, uh, I'll sign up tomorrow. How big is your telescope? Do you have, a, do you have, a, like, do you have loads well, of telescopes? We have lots of lots of telescopes. The problem is they get bigger. They become unmanageable. You don't tend to use them. For a long time, we had a 21-inch diameter telescope, but it practically never got used. Right. I mean, the tubes are being easily fit two or three people inside it. Uh, but <laughs> it's just too unwieldy, unless you have something like that mounted in the observatory. So I've had an 8-inch telescope for about 30 years. 
and it gets used more often because I can hold it in one hand while I put it onto the tripod. Right. And you can take it places. Yeah. Uh, so you can take it up to the mountains where the skies are much darker. We have a lovely dark sky reserve now down in County Kerry, one of the darkest places in Europe. Uh, so you could take it there e easily. You could technically take it abroad. I haven't really taken that one abroad. Right. But other people have. They're very portable. And it's this particular design that's very compact. It's been miniaturized as much as you can miniaturize telescopes. Um, but, you know, we have a 12-inch telescope that belongs to the society, which is about twice as powerful. And above that, they just become unwieldy. So if you're going to build a larger telescope than that, you would, first of all, find a site to keep it on. Uh, and there's the problem yeah, you know gotcha. you want it in a dark sky it's going to have to be yeah. away from the city so you're going to use it even less because then you've got a half hour to an hour drive to it <sighs> and Ireland's not the place to be doing this because it's mostly cloudy in Ireland yeah. one in four right. nights is clear right? Uh, which makes you wonder why the Irish are so interested in astronomy yeah. and always have been I mean, we invented astronomy uh, when we found out it was something past the clouds like, yeah, oh, think, what is it? I think what <laughs> happens is about like when, we, when the sun comes out you know almost throw a party yeah we don't see yeah. it that the often. country shuts down right, i think if you live in the country california or somewhere in the equator where it's sunny or every day yeah it's just something you take for granted yeah and therefore the stars come out and it's it's just complacency whereas in ireland when people see the star especially on not just a, a clear night but a night when there's no mist and the stars look particularly bright against a darker background they're impressed it seems they're just putting the cat out <laughs> you look up you see this thing you will stop and, and yeah. pause and have a look at it and maybe think definitely and i think maybe that might be the factor so maybe the bad weather actually helps yeah makes <laughs> it more impressive i don't know but that's my theory so okay forgive my ignorance here but um with a telescope so the diameter is what you keep talking about there so is it a wider diameter lets you see further or the thing it lets you see things in more detail and is that equal to how powerful it is it's it's they're both linked yeah so the wider, assuming the, the optics, the lens or mirrors in the telescope are made accurately, yeah. which used to be a big assumption, but now actually most telescopes are well made. Uh, so assuming that they are, they are well made, it's the diameter that counts. Because the wider it is, the more light it's collecting and focusing into your eye, or a camera if you're taking mm. pictures with mm. it. So diameter is everything. Okay. And uh, it also happens that the amount of detail you see is also linked to the diameter of the telescope because of the wave nature of light. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you make a telescope magnify, you will eventually start seeing fuzziness because of the wave nature of light. And the only way around that, to make the fuzziness slightly sharper, is to have a wider telescope. So there are two quests on, not just for amateurs, but also for the uh, professional astronomers. One is to have uh, a bigger telescope to collect more light, to see further. And also, to, you know, if you want to collect light from very distant objects, there's very few photons hitting us. So you need a big collecting area to collect those so you can actually produce an image in a reasonable amount of time. And we had this problem with the Hubble Space Telescope. It's not the biggest, not the widest telescope. It was just the biggest one that could fit into the Space Shuttle's payload bay, <laughs> two and a half meter wide mirror. Uh -huh. There are eight meter telescopes on the Earth. Uh, but that one above the, the air, the air makes everything shimmery. Yeah, yeah. Stars twinkle. And it's rather like look, trying to look at coins at the bottom of a pond. Uh, right. If the surface is very calm, you'll see them. But if somebody starts rippling the surface, all of a sudden it distorts the image from below. Yeah. And that's what's happened. The light's travelled millions, billions of light years across space, uninterrupted and unspoiled, until in the last few milliseconds, yeah. thousands of a second, it goes through the Earth's atmosphere and gets all wobbled <laughs> and distorted. So you have to launch a $2 billion cost, a Hubble Space Telescope. But the one advantage it then has is that the air also glows ever so slightly but it doesn't in space, 
So the, the two things, one, they had very sharp optics, very sharp images produced by the telescope, no wobbling effect, and they could just peer at one dark, one what looked like to be a very blank area of space for about one million seconds. If you work that, it's about, that's about a week. Right. And they collected light from what should have been a, an empty patch of sky oh, for yeah. a million seconds and produced a Hubble deep field. That's yeah, the, yeah. the famous photograph. The famous photograph yeah. that shows almost all galaxies, all galaxies out at the edge of the universe. And the tiniest blips in, in that image are galaxies that are on the far side of the observable universe and also they were formed within about a billion years of the of the big bang and we're 14 billion years into it now yeah. and the first maybe half a billion to a billion the first stars were forming so yeah. there weren't really anything before that's an area called the dark ages so the next space telescope uh, is actually tuned it's a bigger telescope but it also sees in the infrared to see this area in particular, the dark ages of the universe, to see the first galaxies form right. and see as our theories of how it all started correct. Yeah, so yeah. it's a time machine, effectively. It's going to yeah. be looking back 13 billion years. And because the universe is expanding, the further away something is, the more faster it's rushing away from you, and the light gets red-shifted. And the galaxies that Hubble is seeing, although they're emitting in the ultraviolet, uh, the, the light it's picking up is actually out in the infrared. It's completely shifted through the visible spectrum and out the other side. Uh -huh. So this new telescope is tuned to the infrared. So it can see the first blinding ultraviolet X-ray light from the first galaxies, which is now out in the infrared. It's shifted that far yeah. because it's, it's rushing it's away from us so fast. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's amazing the telescopes get designed yeah. for the infrared to, to see back in time. How do you uh, exp how do you explain the redshift to children? Is there a way? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we try to give them a talk in about half an hour to an hour on the universe, and there is no way we can explain everything to them. No, of course. And one thing we don't try to do is we mention black holes because we know they've heard about it. There's, there's Hollywood movies about it. So yeah, yeah. Wonder, and the, it turns out black holes are very important, and there was an Irish man that discovered this. One thing we love telling them is the Irish angles to all of this. The fact that we invented astronomy. Newgrange is the oldest astronomical line building anywhere in the world. It predates the pyramids. It predates Stonehenge by, um, uh, by several centuries, nearly a thousand years. So Irish people were watching the skies and, and building huge monuments. It was obviously very important to them, way before everybody else was. And uh, coming closer to, to trying to ex explain things like black holes, there's a, we had, he gave us a lecture in the last year, Dr. John McGorian, who discovered this relationship between the black holes at the centre of galaxies, all galaxies now thought to have a black hole at the centre, and how it controls the galaxy's evolution. And it turns out it slows up the evolution of a galaxy, even though it's less than way less than 1% of the total mass of the galaxy. The black hole has an inordinate influence on the galaxy itself. And that has meant that the Sun, Earth, other planet systems, our solar system, has been around a lot longer than it should have been. Mm -hmm. And that's given enough time for intelligent life to evolve on the Earth. So we are only here directly because there's a black hole in the center of our galaxy. And he was the one that discovered this relationship a couple of years ago. And, you know, not everybody knows it was done by an Irishman. So black holes are very important. We wouldn't be here uh, without black holes. And when black holes were first hypothesized, and even up to very recent times, they were just thought to be sort of mathematical and physical curiosities mm -hmm. where the laws of physics go uh, crazy <laughs> and, and probably need new physics to explain what's really going on and now it turns out they're important to our everyday lives what's the name of our black hole the one in the middle of our galaxy uh it's called sagittarius a star <laughs> and enough. there is this in the constellation sagittarius 
and there was a radio source found first, which is Sagittarius A, and then a, a, another little anomaly was found was given the name A star. So there's a, a very compact object. We can't see it visually because there's too much dust between us and it, mm -hmm. but it, 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 uh, and it doesn't glow really in the infrared. You can pick it up in radio waves and you can see other stars going around it through the dust in infrared, like the way firemen see when they're going into a smoke-filled room. So we can see these stars whipping around something and you can tell how big it is. When you work out what density that must be, it has to be matter within its own event horizon. Right. So it's too, it can't be a compact star. It has to be ex extremely dense about 5 million times the mass of the sun, so it's about the size of a solar system. Um, and uh, stars are whipping around it. We actually have lovely time-lapse movies now, taken over the last two decades, which show the stars in infrared going around. It's amazing. First time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. And uh, there's a little streak of gas detected a couple of years ago that was expected to be sucked into the black hole. And people wanted to see then, would it glow and, and flare up like it does as friction uh, as it hurtles down the sinkhole of this black mm -hmm. hole makes it do what we hoped it would do uh -huh. I believe they're still waiting for that to happen still waiting. but it could happen in our lifetime it'd be great to see the black hole eating something maybe not a whole <laughs> star <laughs> and I thought you know they, they don't eat stars all the time star does get eventually too close and it will gobble that one up and the very very long term future of the universe the black holes gobble up all the stars in the galaxy and Hawking showed because of Hawking radiation the black holes don't last forever Mm -hmm. and we do try and tell the kids a little bit about this especially the older uh, pupils uh, because it means black holes will evaporate and there'll be nothing left in the universe in the future and if I give the talk to the general public who I think can cope with what's going to happen to the universe in the future the black hole's going to eat everything up everything's going to fall into the black holes all the gas clouds are going to make all the stars that are ever going to be and then uh, they end up in the black holes the black holes evaporate in a puff of radiation eventually according to Hawking uh, but we now know, because the recent uh, Nobel Prize that was won about the expansion of the universe, that it's accelerating. There's a thing called dark energy that seems to be pulling the universe apart. And no one really knows everything about it. But if it continues pulling the universe apart faster and faster, one day, I mean, I tell people at the moment that uh, the expansion of the universe is... Uh, it's very important on large scales, but on small scales, it means that the front wall of your house is moving away from the back wall of your house at about a speed of one atom per year. So you're not going to measure that. But your property is actually getting a bit bigger as time goes on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's going to eventually speed up to two atoms per year, then a million atoms a year, then a million atoms a second, and then eventually meters per second, things we can really measure, and ultimately the speed of light. And when the universe is being stretched uh, at, at the speed of light, Matter itself, no individual particles will be able to exist in the universe like that. So matter cannot exist, and that's the, that would be the condition for all of space by definition. No trick you can pull, the law of physics, to, to avoid it. You couldn't invent any contraption to get out of that, and the universe rips itself apart. I'm not sure whether that happens before the black holes gobbling each other up. They're all on time scales of roughly a one with a hundred zeros after it years. So they're very, very long time schedules. The universe is currently a one with, what, ten zeros after it. So it's very, very far in the future. But it does mean you can conclude your talk by saying, so, the universe has no future. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets people thinking. Again. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a bit of a head trip, isn't it? <laughs> might, be like, yeah. might be a bit depressing as well. Yeah, yeah a little too bit, long. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe um, I should keep that one to myself. <laughs> so I don't want to, I need a hug or something. Yeah. <laughs> you were talking there about uh, dark energy. 
and uh, dark energy and dark matter. I remember um, uh, in one of the lectures for my um, for my degree, she the lecturer just brought it up and she said, "We'll talk now about dark energy and dark matter." Yeah. Makes up about ninety five percent of the known universe, and that's all we know about it. Yeah. And yeah. then she moved on to the next topic. <laughs> uh, is is there anything that we actually really know about this, or no. is it just we kind of assume different things from it, like because of what's going on around it? Yeah. Well, there, uh, if I can answer it this way, there are lots of things that astronomy on does. Lots of events, lots of trips. Produces a magazine every month, aimed at the general public, popular level magazine, and we also run lectures, but they're held in Dublin, and only a third of our members live in Dublin, so we record them on DVD for everybody in the country and they're available going back over a decade. There's over 100 lectures there by people like the BBC's rock star astronomer Brian Cox. We had him in to give a lecture and recently uh, Professor Andy Shearer from the Centre of Astronomy in Galway University gave a talk about dark matter and dark energy. And of course that was only recent and he's at the forefront of this area. I can tell you a little bit more about it. We've been refreshed as it were as what's going on. One thing he did was he laid down a lot of the evidence as to why there's dark matter. Dark matter is great in that we can measure it, we can map it, we can't tell you what it is, we can't directly see it, but we know it's doing things to the rest of the matter in the universe and it's about five times more of it than there is of normal matter. So we know quite a bit about it and the best hope for explaining it, and we could get this in the next few months, is that it's a subatomic particle that doesn't interact with matter. So it's like photons of light going through glass. Just passes through them as if it weren't there. Like neutrinos, if you know a bit more about subatomic physics, they could pass through the Earth without interacting with them. And dark matter, I think, is even worse than neutrinos. It just doesn't interact with ordinary matter. Uh, but they hope to find dark matter particles now they've cranked up the Large Hadron Collider mm. at CERN. Mm. Uh, where they think it exists, it should now be operating at those energies. So they've already got one Nobel Prize <laughs> for the Higgs uh, particle. The next one is hopefully you solve the dark matter problem. If they don't, it really is back to the drawing board. A lot of people are pinning their hopes that that's the explanation. If we can get that one tied down, then we can start working on dark energy. And the problem with dark energy is, I think, what Andy basically said about it was the other thing, the only thing we managed to do with dark energy is give it a name. <laughs> <laughs> There's something stretching the universe. It's a force. A force has to have energy linked to it. Uh, it turns out it's even more important than dark matter. Mm. There'd be more energy in the dark energy field uh, than there is in dark matter. And you, like you said, that leaves ordinary matter that we see around us every day and out in space and all the stuff that's glowing and gas and dust is only 5% of the universe. We don't officially know what 95% of the universe is. But in the next year or two, we might be able to get that down to, we don't know what 75% of the universe There'd be a bit of a step yeah, forward. Chip away it, you know? it does chip mean away. there's plenty of jobs for physicists and scientists going into the future. That's true. They have lots of things to explain. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have a lot of work to do together. <laughs> um, all right. I have another question that I suppose I don't, might make me look like an idiot. Um, so, it, okay, the Hubble Space Telescope, is that in orbit? Yes. It's, so yeah. it's it launched 1991. Right. It was 25th anniversary this year. Right. Uh, was it 1990? No, it's 25th anniversary this year. It's 1990, sorry, yes. And um, uh, it's still going strong. It's been serviced by astronauts. It was meant to be serviced by astronauts. And now that can't happen anymore because the space shuttle fleet is mothballed. So it, it could cr could break down tomorrow. But the hope is it'll last a couple more years. And if we're really lucky, it lasts till 2018 when the, its successor, the James Webb Space Telescope, is due to be launched. Uh -huh. 
So, uh, so fingers crossed that it will last. It'll be great for the two of them running at the same time. Mm. What was the reason you said that they couldn't fix it, or they couldn't? Well, uh, it was designed. It, uh, when they launched it, they took it up on, on the space shuttle to a particularly high orbit. Uh, uh. The space shuttle it take up a very large mass to just above where the atmosphere starts, and they drag you back. Right. Uh, that's a, to about three, three, four. They keep the space station around four hundred kilometers, and I think that works out on average. It would fall. The, the friction would drag it back to the Earth after a decade. Right. So if you didn't boost its orbit, it would last a decade. So you want at least 400 kilometers. Hubble's, uh, I think it's 600 or so kilometers. And it's about as high as the space shuttle can go. Okay. Unless you left it completely empty, went a little bit higher, in which case, what would you be doing up there? <laughs> so they had this range of altitudes they could get to. They put Hubble pretty high up, so presumably it won't fall back to Earth for a few centuries. Right. Um, but what will happen is there are moving parts on it, like the gyroscopes. Uh, electrical systems can break down. There are some pock marks in it where little... A piece of debris which are all flying around at several kilometers per second up there have hit it and blasted holes and now it was designed to withstand a certain amount of that yeah, yeah. Uh, one one day a pebble sized object could accidentally and very unfortunately hit it and, and would would wreck it and we had one space shuttle window for instance that was basically chipped not quite cracked fortunately by what they're pretty sure was a fleck of paint left over from a previous craft but moving at those kind of speeds everything's moving yeah, at yeah. five to ten miles per second uh, especially at the closing speed, it's very dangerous if even a tiny uh, particle hits you. So, uh, so it should. So, if the gyroscopes have broken down, they're spinning discs, and they've replaced those in the past. Uh, and the, some of the electrical systems wear out, and of course they get a bit old and outdated. And they upgraded the cameras over the years as digital cameras became more sensitive and bigger. Right. So, so astronauts go up there and they used work to, but now they don't have the space shuttle to do that. And to build a system to take astronauts up just to service the Hubble Space Telescope would cost more than launching a new one would. Okay, so, so the space shuttle happen. that brought it up was the space shuttle that brought up, say, like the, the moon landing missions and stuff. So that goes up a certain height and then something else takes off from it. Yeah, well, the moon landing mission had a different system. They had the, the Saturn V system, which was a three-stage rocket okay. that was designed to get a very big mass into low Earth orbit. And then the next stage would, would blast that off uh, uh -huh. higher than the escape velocity of the Earth. So you'd go free of the Earth you coast to the moon let the moon's gravity catch you and you fire a rocket to slow you up so you went into orbit around the moon then eventually you'd fire another rocket when you were coming back and then you'd you know, hit the earth's atmosphere at 25,000 miles an hour the space station's only doing 17,000 miles an hour but coming back to the moon you'd be going faster and then you use a heat shield to bring you into the atmosphere and lose all that speed by friction so that was the plan with that that was Saturn V with the space shuttle it launched individual modules of the International Space Station Roughly speaking, the shuttle can put up 20 tons. The International Space Station's over 400 tons. You need at least 20 missions. It took a lot more than that because they weren't all full-sized rigs. Uh, it was over 30 missions, I think, it took to, to launch the, uh, the International Space Station. It started in 1998 and was just completed by the last mission in 2011, last shuttle mission. So it took over a decade to build the International Space Station. No rocket could launch something that big in one go. Uh, so the Hubble Space Telescope was another project that they used the shuttle for. And they took it up, uh, released it in, into orbit and left it there. And it, it works autonomously. And then when something breaks down, just to upgrade the optics, they knew that technology would advance, that cameras would get better, that systems might break down. Uh, so there were always these servicing missions. The first one was because it turned out the Hubble Space Telescope mirror was made wrong. Oh, my God. It yeah, was, that was the, the very first yeah. images they got uh, <laughs> oh. that brought brought back to Earth were just all uh, fuzzy and They wonder why else. they couldn't focus them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then they figured out 
there was a very accurate test that was done on the mirror, which basically showed that the, the curve on the surface was an accurate curve. But there was another very simple test that showed it was the wrong oh. curve. And nobody believed. They sort of ignored the simple. We must have done something wrong with that test. Look, the very accurate one is saying everything's fine. And for one reason or another, it got launched that way. The only good thing about that was that it meant it was made perfectly wrong. So with some corrective optics, you could put it back to being perfect again. Yeah. But embarrassing for the two or three years, I think it was, that it was effectively only able to see bright objects. Mm. Wow. So 30, 30 missions for the International Space Station. It's yeah, it's worth about $100 billion because of that. How do you, how do you start something like that? Like, you know, like in, in the, what the first post-it on the wall, you know. <laughs> yeah, <like>. yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's it's the kind of thing. Can you imagine going to a government now and saying, "This is what we want to do. Hmm. Here's how we start. It's going to take this amount of time. It's going to cost a hundred billion." Well, that's sort of what happened. Was the Americans realized they couldn't afford to build this on their own? So they uh, got the Russians had been building space stations. I remember the Mir space station that flew yeah. over. They had the Salute series before that. I saw them all flying over Ireland uh, uh, back before the the ISS days. Hmm. Um, Mir was getting very old. There were mould growing in it, there was uh, flames shooting out of it while the astronauts were there at one oh stage. <laughs> uh, all kinds of interesting stories happened on Mir, but it worked. And uh, it's, I think it still holds the record for the longest duration, uh, single person being in, in space, 400 and odd days. Whoa. Uh, and uh, the, so it set lots of records and the space shuttle went up to Mir and docked with it. And then the international community came together to build one proper research laboratory in space and that's yeah. what the international space station is it's a big laboratory in space both for the experiments that people who want to do weight experiments that you can do certain things weightlessness that you can't do on the ground and there are even things like towers very tall towers around the world where scientists drop objects in a vacuum tower and they'll be weightless for a few seconds and you can get enough research information out of those yeah. relatively cheaply to to do a few things of weightlessness. But if you want to have weightlessness for hours, days, weeks, months, years on end, you can't be at the space station. Yes. And I remember yeah. in the early days, uh, there was a drug called interferon, which it was thought might be a cure for a cancer. It turned out, I believe, that it, it, it works on certain cancer, but not all. Right. But the story at the time went that if you were to build a plant on the earth to make enough of it to do trials with, it would cost $100 million to do that. But if you, apparently in weightlessness, you can extract it much easier with a much smaller experiment and you could make trials size samples for about $5 million. So the big drug companies are going to look at $100 million to do it on the earth, $5 million to do it in space. You can know, see which way the commercial decision is going to take you. You do it in space. Unfortunately, it turned out it wasn't the cure-all for cancer. Right, but yeah. there are lots of things you can do like that, growing extremely pure crystals and then studying the effects of weightlessness on animals, plants, because mm. I think everybody expects the human race will end up in space one day, yeah. whether it's this millennium, or this century, or this millennium. I don't really know, uh, but it's going. It's certainly going to be one day. We're using up the Earth's resources. We could perhaps be destroying the planet. There are more of us. We're going to need places to go. The history of the Earth shows that the human race expands. Mars is there. Difficult place to live. But then so was North America five hundred years ago. And is there anywhere else of? interest to you that um could um be our new home in the future well of course the one place you could live is in an orbital laboratory if you make something big enough you can spin it and you can simulate earth gravity so that's we've seen that I think in 2001 the space Odyssey, that movie uh, back in the late 60s so that's not a new idea that's one way of doing it another is to go to the moon 
where there are resources, uh, but of course there's no atmosphere, so you have to live in enclosures, and that's expensive and difficult and complicated. And why go to the moon? Put yourself further away if you can do it in an orbital laboratory or orbital station around the Earth. But then we start to look at other places. Uh, water is the thing you're always looking for. Uh, if you've got a good, and we know Mars has lots of water. If you could melt all the water below Mars' surface, you'd have an ocean covering the entire planet about 30 meters deep, which is not like the Earth's ocean, but it's plenty of water for humans. Yeah. If, and it's it's fairly fairly accessible. The moons of Jupiter then are places where there might be life, because the gravity of the moons and Jupiter itself stretches the moons, rather like bending a piece of metal backwards and forwards. The joint heats up from friction, and that's melted the inside of these moons, which are basically slush. And the rock falls to the centre, uh, we think, and the oceans float on top. And the second big moon of Jupiter, Europa, uh, we're pretty sure, has an ocean that's warm, full of organic material, and it has twice as much water in it than the Earth's oceans do. So it's a smaller object, it's, it's about the size of our moon, so it's four times as wide than the Earth is, but it turns out it's got twice as much water. And there should be life in that ocean, if we're right about how life got started on the Earth. So there's a lot of missions planned to go there. It's, it's, it's quite cold out where it is on the surface, but obviously warm below thanks to that friction. It would be a crazy place to live. So it's full yeah. of sexy well, you know, if your own plant, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a tiny, tiny chance it's full of whales and dolphins, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that are getting ready to build their first telescopes and rockets <laughs> and come and visit us. Uh, but even if there was simple microbial life, yeah. and you knew yeah. that it started on the moons of Jupiter and it started on Mars or the Earth, because we may have infected each other in, in the early days, um, then that's two very different places in the one solar system where life started. And then you look at the recent discoveries of things like survey that Kepler Space Telescope has done, which has been projected out to imply there's about 40 billion Earth-like planets in our galaxy. And of course, there's roughly a trillion galaxies in the observable universe. So there's 40 billion trillion Earths out there. So some of them must have life on them. They could be very, very far away. Uh, we might never be able to, not couldn't detect them with current technology, but at least they could exist. Or is there something very unique about the Earth? Or are we just the very first intelligent life form? forms that came into existence in this universe it took a certain amount of time to churn up all the stuff i mean one thing i love telling the kids in schools is that we're all made of nuclear waste <laughs> i mean the romantic story to tell people is you know because the the, the a- atoms that are in our bodies weren't created in the big bang it was 75 percent hydrogen and uh, a quarter for three quarters hydrogen one quarter helium and practically nothing else was formed during the big bang and then the hydrogen made the first gas clouds made the first stars and they crushed the atoms together like our sun is doing to make helium and that can make carbon and nitrogen oxygen and all the other elements up to about iron then you have to have a supernova explosion of a giant star to make bigger atoms like for instance zinc I love telling about zinc because without zinc you will die <laughs> and zinc is only made in supernova explosions so human beings are only alive because we have zinc in our bodies and every atom of that was created in a supernova explosion long before the earth came into existence uh, so some people like to be romantic about it and say so we're all made of star stuff uh-huh. but in fact if you think about it really all made of nuclear waste <laughs> <laughs> kids appreciate the yeah, yeah. you know the nuclear waste story okay so of all those like there's there seems to be all sorts of weird planets that we know about i mean there's the one that seems to be like a fully diamond planet right 
Mm. Yeah, there's a, the, there are some exotic objects like neutron stars and the dead cores of stars like, like the sun will produce in the future, white dwarfs, that can crystallise out into almost pure carbon atoms. And technically they'd be like a giant diamond. Yeah, yeah. There was another gas cloud found out there. They found alcohol, that's ethanol, the stuff yeah. we like <laughs> in this gas cloud. Now, when they added up how much alcohol there was, there were several Earth sizes <laughs> of alcohol. It's very widely scattered through space, so you're not going to be able to harvest it very easily. But it's nice to know there's all that alcohol out there if you ever need it. You know? Uh, so, so there's all kinds of weird things they've discovered yeah, in space. Do you have a do you have a favorite, I suppose, strange planet or a favorite planet that might be out there that's weird? Uh, no, because of course you're going to hypothesize about all the different types of planets that are out there. But when you when you take people through the solar system and uh, give me a big lecture in in uh, Ennis on June the 11th, we're doing a tour in our theatres around Ireland. So we we talked in Trinity, uh, we've done Carlo, uh, and next is Ennis, and hopefully then we'll take it around the rest of the country. Um, the, uh, in, in terms of your favourite planet you take people through all the planets of our solar system and the moons and some of them you know have uh, little quirky things of interest in them so for instance you get to Europa Jupiter's second big moon that's that's the hot tip for where there's life in the, in the solar system apart from the earth yeah. not really Mars anymore in my own personal opinion is that if, if life did get started on Mars it certainly was very wet very like the earth and it was there long enough that for the same kind of time scale that simple life started on the earth so life could have started on mars but i think conditions are certainly are very drastic now and either the life stopped evolving and it's eking out a miserable existence on mars or it died off right maybe we'll find some fossils maybe we'll find some microbes that's about it but on europa that should have been there for the same length of time as the earth's been there and things should have evolved mm. and that's the hot the hot tip so that's really an exciting place yes, to go yes. i've had infinite resources you'd go straight to Europa drill down through the ice crust and see what's in that water underneath because yeah. even if you found there's no life there it would mean you'd have to re-examine well are we wrong about how life got started on the earth and that's just as big a, a question yeah. or issue as finding the life on Europa would be then you get to the big moon of Saturn Titan and you know, it's got a nitrogen atmosphere like the one we're breathing now the difference is it's one and a half times thicker than the stuff we're breathing now <laughs> and the oxygen in our in our atmosphere of course is a byproduct it's plant life that's producing all right, that oxygen course, it, yeah. it's a pollutant <laughs> and it's a highly toxic gas uh, because it, it rusts your car you know it oxygen is, is very reactive gas uh, if the life wasn't continuously replenishing it would it would it would uh, chemically combine with lots of different things on the Earth's surface and vanish. There'll be no oxygen left in the atmosphere. So if you find a planet with an oxygen atmosphere, it's almost certainly produced by life because there's no ge geological process that produces that much oxygen. Only really life does it. So that's why we don't see oxygen anywhere else, um, unfortunately. So you get to Titan with this nitrogen atmosphere, one and a half times thicker than the stuff we're breathing now. The problem is that minus 180 degrees Celsius. So we couldn't, we, there's no oxygen for it to breathe, it'd be way too cold anyway. But what happens, the sun is heating up, and when the sun gets close to the end of its life, it's going to heat up the outer part of the solar system, and Titan will heat up. And is it an Earth in deep freeze? Well, um, who knows? But that's a fascinating place to go as well. And that's some quirky little spacecraft picture to have of Uranus. One of my favourite moons is Miranda, small moon of, of Uranus. It's only about the size of uh, Britain and Ireland, if you look at it on a map, a few hundred kilometres across. 
and um, it was smashed apart by comets, we're pretty sure, because you can see on the pictures, the terrain doesn't match where the bits have fallen back together, like somebody ramming a jigsaw back <laughs> in, the wrong, in the wrong order. And there are these ice cliffs on Miranda. They're, they're 10 kilometres high. There's no atmosphere, it's too small. So you can imagine the view. You're 30 times further from the sun than we are. The sun's a thousand times dimmer in the sky. It's freezing cold. But you're looking up at these ice cliffs, jet black sky, and the sun just a bright star in the sky. Now, you know, that's like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls is today. It's a place that people are going to want to go and visit on their holidays. Mm. Yeah. You know, so uh, there's all these exotic places in our solar system that we found, let alone the other 40 billion trillion planets that are probably Earth-like planets <laughs> that are probably in, in the observable universe. <sighs> that's the other thing we tell kids is the numbers are just mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you say the average galaxy, our, our Milky Way, is maybe a half a trillion stars. There are galaxies bigger than ours and some smaller. So you could say the average galaxy has roughly a trillion stars. And of course, we're all used to a trillion with the amount of money we owe today. So yeah. it's about a million million. Yeah. So maybe they can understand a million. It'd be good fun for them to try. But can they understand a million million? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's, that's at one trillion. And it turns out there's a trillion galaxies. So there's a trillion trillion stars in, in the universe that we know of. That's a million, 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 million. Four, you have to say million four times. So the way to try and imagine that, just try and put some manners on these numbers in astronomy, is that you try and imagine you won the lottery. It was a million euro jackpot, and they paid you in euro coins. <laughs> and you went out with each euro coin and bet on the lottery again. And each one of those won a million euro jackpot. So now you'd have a million, million coins. Now imagine you went out of that big pile and everyone you bet on lottery and you won a million on every single one of those. Now you have a million, million, million and you've still do that a million times until you get to the trillion, trillion stars that there are in the universe. And I hope at the end of that, at least the kids are thinking, not the rest of us, yeah, this is worth thinking about and this is amazing and there's a lot out there. And that's what happened to me when I was a kid. I remember the first book I saw, there was the picture of the earth, a little, little dot, little tiny blue dot and this the sun next to it the sun's a hundred times wider and I thought wow the sun's I never realized the sun was that big mm. and then on the next page the sun was a little disc and there was another star yeah. from its name now that was you know a hundred times bigger than the sun and the next page that star was a little disc and this went, went on for about four pages and the last star was the biggest star they, they knew at the time um, I thought that's that is so incredibly big. I can't imagine it if it's about four pages of this stuff. Yeah. And it opened my mind to the fact that the Earth, which we thought was very important, is actually very trivial. And that also, in schools, they're not telling us about them, everything that's out there. Yeah. In fact, they're telling us about practically nothing. Yeah. Why aren't more people talking about that? And what happened there was my curiosity was piqued. And you can get a young mind to pique their curiosity. They say it happened with Einstein with magnets. Yeah. I mean, we've all been fascinated by magnets. How can they possibly push each other away when there's obviously no strings between them? Or <laughs> any, this is just this is magic that's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet the science to to explain all that kind of thing. So you get something to pique people's imagination. You get them thinking, and then the rest, the human curiosity just takes over after that. Yeah. I think there's there's some really iconic pictures associated with uh, astronomy. And the uh, like, the pale blue dot, yeah, is one of them that I always picture whenever I'm thinking of um, space, and it's just it makes you feel so small, but yet so important. If everything we're doing is happening in this tiny little dot, um, but everything else is still out there, you know. Yeah, yeah, that is that is one of the iconic pictures. Or I mean, Carl Sagan. 
yeah. Um, yeah. who sprung to fame during the 70s when they put the first lander on Mars. He was yeah. heavily involved with the Viking mission and then got into the public arena uh, set up, by the way, the Planetary Society, mm. which is the biggest, numerically speaking, space interest organization in the world. They have over 100,000 members worldwide. And, uh, and we modeled astronomy on when we formed it, sort of on, 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 on a little bit on the Planetary Society. And his pale blue dot looking back on the Earth and having this idea just to take a picture and show how tiny it was. And that's just the edge of our solar system. It's about 6,000 times further than Pluto, which I don't think the Voyager craft had reached or that kind of distance when it took that picture till you get to the next nearest star. So you're still on our doorstep and it looks like an insignificant speck. And I think for a lot of people, it put, put it into perspective. Yeah. You, know, you could argue that Carl Sagan, he was a romantic, he wasn't a scientist, he was a romantic, he was a poet. Yeah. And you could see these visions and he had that, the passion just came ac across. But another, another iconic picture is the one showing the, I think it was the Apollo 8 crew, if I remember correctly, one of the Apollo missions took a picture of the Earth rising over the edge yeah. of the moon. Yeah. 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 And the other thing they were able to do was they could hold out their arm uh, their thumb at arm's length yeah. and they could cover the planet with their thumb block it out completely yeah. and they realised at the time the population was only 3 billion or at 7 billion now I think but they could hide all 3 billion people behind their thumb in the vastness of the universe and they were still relatively close to the earth and the story goes that when people saw this picture and how fragile this little thing was with this very thin atmosphere which we all rely on it's, it kicked off the entire environmental movement yeah you know, so what did space exploration give us? What did go to the moon give us? Did it give us the microelectronics industry? Uh, yes, it did. Thanks for the few trillion dollars a year that, that makes. <laughs> but it also gave us the environmental movement, which may one day save the planet. So you never know what you're going to get back from these things, apart from the initial missions you have, uh, objectives you have for any particular mission. Yeah, I love those those photographs that were kind of not planned. They just happened like that. One was yeah, like that. Yeah. And what was the name of the guy who actually stayed on, on the... Um, you know, the Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin obviously went down to the moon. He was and almost Irish, wasn't he? He was Michael, Michael Collins. Collins. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the very man. <laughs> meant to research his Irish ancestry, but there has to be some there. I yeah. But he, fact, he was I, just kind of waiting, wasn't he? And he took a picture. And then it turned out he was the only person that was behind, the only person yeah. who ever existed. He certainly who wasn't that. in the picture, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he also became at the time the, the, the loneliest person in, yeah. in history. Yeah. Because, of course, his colleagues were a few thousand miles away on the other side of the moon when he was going around it. Yeah. And, uh, there was no one on the earth that was that far away from another human being. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I met Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Uh, I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Armstrong in 2003, it was. And one of the questions we had from him, because you always ask him the same questions, oh, was it like on the moon, etc., etc., was, uh, and I thought, Neil Armstrong, this was before Barack Obama, who we know, all now know is, is Irish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who would have thunk it? <laughs> um, so we, I remember, I think, Armstrong might be Scottish. Well, we'll ask him anyway. And he actually said, yes, he had researched the genealogy of his family. And they found out that the family came from County Fermanagh. Yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> and, he also, and then he laughed. And he, uh, and he said, uh, apparently, you know, the family wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't the best family. He said they were known for cattle rustling, which <laughs> 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 he laughed about at the time. So not many people know the first man on the moon is descended from ancient Irish cattle rustlers. Oh, we'll just call him Irish. <laughs> first man on the moon was Irish. There you go. Neil Armstrong was Irish. Yeah, yeah he was an Irish man. In fact, he was the first man on the moon. Mm. And that's another thing you tell the kids is that the kids that are at school today, probably one of those is the right age to graduate, get into an astronaut program and be the first person on Mars. Most people say the first, the first person on Mars is in school today. And there's no reason why it couldn't be an Irish, a genuine Irish person 
um, as an American or a Russian or anybody else that's heavily involved in the space business. Could be you, Paddy. Could even be you. No, I think in school, I think, uh, yeah, a bit younger <laughs> than me. <laughs> um, and I suppose you have to go soon. Are you... Um, are you into like uh, sci-fi into movies? Yeah, yeah, I love love science fiction. What's Back in the early days, we w- watched the original series of Star Trek. Okay, so that, what do you think of the new ones? Uh, do I watch every one of them? I, I've some of the TV series I like. Some I'm I'm not such a big fan of. I'm not really a big fan of Deep Space Nine. But the purists have told me you really have to get into it. Like, <laughs> I to regard it as Coronation Street in space. <laughs> <laughs> like stories that you could be telling on the Earth. What's the where's the space angle? But I, I particularly like Voyager. But I remember yeah. um, we were good friends of one of the authors of Star Trek who lives in County Wicklow, uh, writes some of the books, and uh, we had a party in her house when, I think it's because she'd got a nice big advance for one of the books that had <laughs> come up. Um, this was a long time ago. And the we'd all reused the original series, and uh, what's the first one that came out after that? The Next Generation. Next Generation. Yeah. And she had a video that she brought over from the States. She said she was really from New York. Uh, and it was playing in the party. We all looked at this sort of, they're trying to relaunch Star Trek, you know, this is gilding the lily, this is rewriting history, you can't do things like that. And we looked at it for a few minutes and then wandered back into the party and totally ignored it. Mm. When it was eventually network released, you know, it became a, a, a big hit and I actually ended up watching an awful lot of it. And probably my favourite one of the lot was Voyager. Yeah. You know, that I, for me did it anyway. I think, like, I, I kind of, I kind of feel like when I was growing up, Voyager was on the TV most. Like, my mom is a big Trekkie, and so uh, I pretty much grew up watching uh, Star Trek all the time. But I was watching um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's show, uh, Star Talk, and its first yeah. episode was with um, uh, George Decay. And they were saying the original series only lasted for three seasons, mm. which is shorter than meet the kardashians <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an absolute outrage you yeah, know yeah but um how many seasons is that in there i don't know but <laughs> well i mean it's a whole program you do on the history of, of star trek itself and you know what happened in the early days but then it was you know they were they were finding their way both yeah. in science fiction on, on television and indeed in television it's the 1960s you know te- television hadn't been going for that long uh, the, this, I was reading an article about modern television and many series are being released because we've got these fantastic series that come out these days and uh, some of the programs I watch that are hour long uh, episodes I mean, each one of those could be a, 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 a full length feature movie mm-hmm. some of the scripts are that good and of course there's lots more science fiction to Star Trek I mean I'm a big fan of the Star Wars uh, movies which do you prefer between the two? Um, they're so very different aren't yeah. they? Uh, and, that's, and that's the thing uh, so, and some of the movies, Star Trek movies, are better than others. You know, we all have our favourites. Yeah. But then you come fast forward right to the future. I mean, last year we had Interstellar. Yeah, do you like that? And before that we had Gravity. Yeah. We tend to do a lot of competitions. Uh, if people want to get on our email list, you you'll see these coming up from time to time with with the mo- movie companies. So we we we're at the previews for Gravity, and we watched in three D and IMAX, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was jealous of the person next to me who was really taken in by the 3D effect and kept ducking and, and <laughs> ducking in their seat. Occasionally I would twitch. But I thought, damn, I wish I was having that, that effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As a piece of debris came straight out of the movie. But I thought it was fantastic. Now, I know not one, it won, I don't remember how many Oscars. It won some Oscars, didn't it, Gravity? Yeah, I think but, it won like all the kind of... Yeah, I mean, the special effects, effects yeah. were amazing. They were, but yeah. the story, you know, if it was a book, you wouldn't have recommended it to no, your friends. no. Yeah. 
So I'm trying to be accurate that way. But Interstellar, I thought was it had uh, it had all the prospects to be a fantastic movie, and it it covered a few things, uh, and the science behind it though was ridiculous. And I w- I looked at the credits at the end, see who who was their science advisor, yeah. and it's Kip Thorne, yeah, which those people in the know of. So Kip Thorne's sort of the American answer to Stephen Hawking, yeah, and I couldn't believe he put his name behind that. I mean things like love being a. a a fifth force of nature and things like <laughs> that. that was stretching the romanticism just a bit too much uh, and there was no need for, for that kind of thing it ruined it for me so I think you'll love Interstellar if you if you don't know the intricates of the science yeah um, but I think they did great some of it well blockbuster but if you know the science it'll ruin it for you yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you always have to kind of um, you know take yourself away from being a, uh, a scientist yeah. if yeah. you're going to watch a movie because there's so many uh, science fiction films out there that just have bad science, you know. And, That's true. Uh, yeah. And I suppose it is science fiction. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I remember one story. I was at a, uh, an event in Patrick Moore's house for the 50th anniversary of Sky at Night program on BBC, and um, he was joined by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, couldn't be there, but his it, 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 sorry, Arthur C. Clarke had passed away. His brother was representing the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation. They were good pals, Patrick Moore and Arthur C. Clarke. And they arrived late and they had nowhere to stay. Fortunately, the place we were staying had his, uh, an empty room. I found out earlier. So they, they um, we told them about this, helped them to get moved in. And so we went to the pub with Arthur C. Clarke's brother afterwards. And he told he was involved in the making uh, of the, the 2001 Space Odyssey. He mm-hmm. said they had spent a fortune on the big obelisk that appears in the movie. And when they went to film it, it turned out it was translucent, which is not the effect he wanted. And he, I've forgotten the figure. It was some re- huge amount of money they'd spent on this thing to have it made. And it was just scrapped. Mm. And he uh, was good, apparently, at DIY and, and offered to basically go down to the local DIY yard and get a few sheets of chipboard and paint and knock one up. So <laughs> the obelisk, you see, made, was made on the cheap by Arthur C. Clarke's brother. Wow. <laughs> so it's amazing. amazing the kind of science fiction story you'll come across yeah. 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 involved in astronomy clubs. Oh. <laughs> Um, so I think you're you're heading away to a lecture now in a few minutes. Um, uh, I suppose before we wrap up, do you want to tell people how they can get involved in Astronomy Ireland? Well, the first thing is that Astronomy Ireland is there for everybody in the country. I think everybody should be a member. We have so much going on. I mean, you can be interested in astronomy from the maths, the science, but even just I think some of the pictures that come back from space are better than most works of modern art that I've seen. Mm-hmm. So you can be interested in art, poetry, romanticism. We've covered so much today. Black holes, telescopes. Um, photography, the whole lot. There's something there for everybody. We're always looking for people to join Astronomy Island. The entire country is welcome to join. It's run by volunteers, so everything's very uh, inexpensive. The magazine will cost you less than a euro a week, mm. less than a pint a month, and you'll <laughs> be at a magazine full of Irish stories. Um, there's Irish science involved in a lot of things. They write for us. A lot of us not available on the internet. It'll tell you what to see in the sky. So if you want to sign up as a member, go to astronomy.ie and Top line says join here. Uh, if you haven't got a euro a week, become a friend of Astronomy Island. You get on our free mailing list, which will tell about various events coming up, like lectures with Brian Cox to the Astronomer Royal to Andy Shearer to loads of other interesting people like that. Trips around the world. Uh, we have a trip to the Arctic Circle every year to see the Aurora. We go to every eclipse that comes near us. Uh, loads All more expenses events. paid by Astronomy Ireland. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, yeah. <laughs> the cruise companies won't give us free passes, <laughs> so we have to unfortunately charge for that. Uh, but you know, there's just so much getting. And then there's what is Astronomy on trying to do? Next 25 years, inspiring the future. So if you think that's a good idea, 
and astronomy clubs should get involved in that then join us for that reason because there's a million and one reasons everyone's welcome the whole family should sign up and we think it's great for kids there's reduced rates for kids as well so astronomy.ie or just search for astronomy ireland you'll find us we've been there for 25 years we're a pretty oh. high ranking uh, hit <laughs> search engines <laughs> and we'll be important thing is to get involved there's going to be so much happening in the next uh, things are going to speed up for space and science in the next few decades and i'm no doubt astronomy is definitely the place to be great okay well that sounds good to me good oh well thank you very much for coming on the podcast my pleasure So that was episode seven of the Headstuff podcast with David Moore. Hope you enjoyed that. I'm still uh, flabbergasted. It's a lot of information to take It's a in. lot of information. This is Paddy with me here. Still Paddy. Still me. Oh, it's so, <laughs> I, it's so hard to think about, but so unbelievably fascinating and wonderful to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like I think, you know, we brought it up in the podcast that astronomy is a great way for regular folk to get into science mm-hmm. because you you can just look up in the sky yeah. and if you start asking questions about that and start looking into a bit more you'll eventually find yourself reading and looking more into science and everything yeah, else that's true um and that's why i think astronomy is so approachable yeah to the to the layman yeah layperson yeah yeah, so oh, yeah. you know yeah Quality for all. It's <laughs> where we live in now, <laughs> thankfully. Yep. Um, Ireland is uh, is still buzzing after we voted yes to same sex marriage. So, um, it's pretty much the. I feel like I'm saying equality like eighty times a day now. Yeah, I feel it's it's definitely brought it more into my uh, vocabulary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, it's like making tea for everyone in the office, and they're like, you know, the cups are filled to a different level. It's like that's not equality yeah throughout <laughs> all the teams started again like. yeah yeah exactly yeah uh have to have an office referendum just to make yeah. sure that uh yeah. yeah and we and it's it's the only democratic thing to do it's the only right thing to do um so yeah yeah astronomy i mean i think i think astronomy is how i got into sciencey stuff i mean i never studied any sciencey things yeah i think i took more of force to study i took more of a direct route yeah into, you, uh, you went science. into physics and maths physics and maths yeah that, that was my jam <laughs> you're like a proper nerd whereas i'm like one of the kind of cool nerds who got into it myself yeah 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 <laughs> you were off doing art and writing yeah. books and stuff and then you were like oh what's this science stuff and then you start reading it for yourself yeah and then you'd ask me a question i'd be like uh you're like Oh, well, I know the answer. <laughs> I just wanted to talk to someone about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's for, for me, I got into it by, like, I suppose the stars. It's the same way, I talked about this with you the other day, how I get into different sports. It's generally via some accessible star. So I've got into a little bit into U- UFC now through Conor McGregor. Yeah. Um, Notorious. Shout out. Yeah. I got into, uh, like, golf through Rory McIlroy and tennis through Federer, you know. Um, well, the second time getting into tennis, probably. Um, but the same with uh, with science. You know, you get in through like Carl Sagan, um, yeah. you know Brian Cox, Brian Richard Cox, Dawkins, yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the man himself. Great people to listen to, and they. It's 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 not about just like looking Bill up. Bill Nye, <sighs> Bill Nye, the science guy, great guy. Um, it's just uh, these guys just have a great way of explaining things. And making you fascinated by the way they tell you about the story, 
and that's how I got into it. And I think David Moore is, is very good, similar. Like he's very, very similar. good at yeah. explaining how things work, how big things are, how hot things are, how far away things are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially like you can see from when he's like talking to kids in schools and stuff. Mm. Because he has to bring it down to the simplest level, mm. he can explain it so well. Yeah. And I think, like the greats that we've just mentioned, he has that enthusiasm as well. And so it's a, it's a great mixture. Mm. And Stephen Hawking, I should mention Stephen Hawking too. Yeah. Because I've read a couple of his books and I love them as well. Um, so that's it. That's, that's episode seven. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it and subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and if you can rate us, that'd be brilliant. We need some more ratings because that really helps. And reviews. Uh, the five-star reviews, are, are they're the ones we prefer. Yeah. Um, if you can give us a five or a four-star. If you're into a one or two-star, just don't bother. Yeah. Don't just, drag us down. Just Well, just we just don't need that review. Like, so just don't bother. Yeah. So uh, do all that stuff. Um, and It's probably some people you have to thank. Isn't yes. It? Thanks, Patrick. <laughs> Patty's here to remind me of that stuff. Uh, well also you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at, if you just put in head stuff you'll find us um, so uh, who should we thank we should probably thank I suppose Video Blue who did the team tune mm-hmm. what do you think of the team tune oh it's awesome isn't it it's, it's probably the the most awesome team yeah. tune of any podcast well I didn't say it I, di- I did yeah Paddy said it yeah. I may have said it earlier <laughs> in the series <laughs> uh, we should thank um, Adam um, the beautiful beautiful Adam He's, he's a great looking guy the uh, the head stuff podcast uh, producer um uh, i suppose i should thank paddy for being here uh, thanks very much thanks for having me yeah uh, you're very welcome we'll have you again uh thanks to david moore for being on the on the podcast thanks to um mikey who doesn't know he'll be doing the artwork but he will be <laughs> <laughs> at some point and matt as usual for just being for being matt like um i'm sure johnny's in the other room typing away there yep can't do it without him well I mean, we could, like, <laughs> we could. <laughs> Sorry, Johnny. But but thanks still, Johnny, for existing um, and doing what you do. Uh, is that everyone I'm supposed to thank? Uh, you didn't give me a list, so th- but that sounds good. All right. Well, thanks to everybody, and uh, see you next week again with some other guests that we have. Much love. <laughs>